Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. My name is Steve Bloom. I'm the former editor of High Times Magazine. I was news editor, and then I was also music editor, and I eventually became the co-editor of High Times Magazine. The article in High Times about Adam Katz is dated February 1990. I felt it was an important story. Obviously, you know, a member of the tribe died at an event. And around that time, there was a lot of turmoil among the deadheads who were being targeted by police for their traveling community. A lot of communities just did not want it. They didn't want the deadheads parking in their community for a couple of days, you know, and creating their little world. This was right in the middle of the drug war. We're still in the middle of the drug war, but it was a lot more intense then. Even High Times had a hard time existing in the 80s, barely survived. One of the big aspects of the Reagan White House was the Just Say No campaign led by his wife, Nancy. Say yes to your life. And when it comes to drugs and alcohol, just say no. Many of you may be thinking, well, drugs don't concern me, but it does concern you. It concerns us all because of the way it tears at our lives and because it's aimed at destroying the brightness and life of the sons and daughters of the United States. I implore each of you to be unyielding and inflexible in your opposition to drugs. The police really were targeting the deadheads for their drug use. You know, the 70s were pretty loose. Decriminalization of cannabis was happening. The Carter White House was pretty friendly to the cause. They didn't really change anything dramatically. Carter lost and Reagan came in. That ushered in 12 years of Republicanism in the White House. So it's not so easy to be rolling around America in a deadhead community with a lot of drugs. You're a big target. The story that I wrote about Adam Katz, it's confusing as to what happened. There were different opinions on the cause of his death. Adam was pronounced dead at 1 p.m. the next day. Sometime after 9 p.m. the night before, he was hit on the head with a blunt instrument classified as a homicide. Katz's death has yet to be resolved. I wrote that in 1990. It has never been resolved. He ended up on the bottom of a bridge on that highway on the crossover, and he was hit with blunt force. How did he go over there? Of course, the police wanted to concoct this idea that he jumped because he was high in LSD and he didn't know better. And that was their convenient excuse. That's the Linkletter excuse. You know, Art Linkletter's daughter, famous talk show host back in the 60s, jumped out a window, supposedly under the influence of LSD. And that was sort of this idea forever that people under the influence of LSD might jump out windows. Anybody who has said anything which would encourage my daughter to take LSD was unwittingly a part of being her murderer. I'm Mike Rooney, a producer here at Tenderfoot TV. 
That was Art Linkletter. His daughter Diane jumped from her sixth floor balcony in West Hollywood. After the event, he went on a crusade against drugs and said those who manufacture and sell LSD were responsible for killing his daughter. But her autopsy revealed that there were no traces of the drug in her system. They used that as a defense. Adam just must have just jumped because he was so high. Well, why was he beaten? Often they already have a theory of how that person died and the medical examiner is looking at, is this possible or not? The first autopsy report on Adam Katz claimed that no drugs or alcohol were found in his body. A month after his death, at the request of the attorney general, the chief medical examiner was assigned to review the original autopsy. He concluded that Adam Katz died after a plunge from an overpass. If someone were to dive headfirst into the pavement while tripping on acid, wouldn't they have injuries to their neck or spine? This is Todd Matthews. He put together the original list on murdered and missing deadheads. I've had autopsies redone. I've exhumed a body here that was supposedly a died in blunt force trauma fall, and I don't believe it was enough damage for that. There was a second autopsy, and now I'm looking at the possibility of a third autopsy with people that are familiar with blunt force trauma. They're looking at patterns that maybe the standard medical examiner's not looking at. You have to get the people in the right areas of expertise looking at it when you're questioning something in particular like this. A lot of things get overlooked that way. And I think there's a lot of cases out there that they've not been that second guess. What else could have happened? Could this have been a murder instead of a suicide? The chief medical examiner based his conclusion on an eyewitness report that Adam had been seen licking a tab of acid and was on a bad trip. Neither autopsy found any debris from the highway in his head wound, which would be inconsistent with a fall. The family filed a lawsuit, claiming a cover-up by the state. Here's Dean Budnick of Relics.com. I think the family still would like resolution if something happened to my my children, I, I probably would want some peace in knowing exactly what it was and potentially administering some justice. If there's somebody out there who did crack him on the head, it's probably not first degree murder. That They probably didn't intend to kill him. It's probably manslaughter or something else. They, they still did something that's unacceptable and they should be charged with that. They should be held to the fire. And ultimately, to me, this is mostly about closure for the family. If the family just could understand what happened, be told what went down, what what were his final moments. And I think if the perpetrator could be brought to justice, I think that would bring some measure of relief to the family. Listen, someone saw it. That, that lot is big enough. There are enough people there that even during the show, there are enough people who didn't get into that show. On a Saturday night at Brendan Byrne Arena at the Meadowlands in 1989, someone saw something. There's not a doubt in my mind. Maybe they don't quite know what it was. Maybe they still haven't processed it. Maybe they're still afraid and traumatized by whatever went down. Someone saw it. And so I think there's someone out there who can testify to what happened and bring a wrongdoer to justice.
I am, of all the Grateful Dead staff, I'm the one that's out in the audience. This is Dennis McNally. He was the Grateful Dead's historian and publicist for over 20 years. I mean, there's the sound mixer and the lighting designer. They're at the soundboard, which is out in the middle of the audience, but they're not going anywhere. They're there. That's their turf. I am taking the TV crews from backstage out to the soundboard, which is where they shot from. I'm the only person that, that, want, <laughs> that wanted there to be nice open aisles. They opened a NBA-sized modern arena. It was called the Knickerbocker Arena at the time. Tom Petty played there, and we were the next band in. We kept having these advanced meetings, and I was part of them, with the security. The security team kept saying, yeah, we got this, we got this, we got this, and I kept saying, I'm not buying, you know, I'm not hearing you. I, I don't think, you know, you need to make clear to your ushers that they've never seen anything like this. And it's not like they're violent. They want to dance. They want to get up and dance. Which means an aisle is fair game unless you firmly say you can't stay in the aisle. I anticipated what I was about to see. We found out what it would be like to have no security. One minute after the lights went down, there were no aisles. The ushers and the security took one look and they went, Oh my God, and they just ran. It's sensory overload. There's all these people and they're all colorful and they're all dancing and happy and excited. The ushers just vanished. <laughs> so that guy who'd been telling us how they had it, they had it, they had it, and I'm screaming at him, where are your people? Because I have to go through this mess. The security vanished. We had a strenuous after-show meeting with security and, you know, they talked to people and explained what the reality was and they said, okay, now you've seen it. These people are not scary. You just have to be firm and keep your patience because you can shoo them away 10 times and they're like, you know, they're like, you know, chipmunks, they're gonna, they're gonna be back. Adam Katz, was the one that was the weirdest for me. The deadheads had been known to complain about the security guards being too belligerent at the stadium. They weren't with me, but I was 35 years old and I had a laminate and they worked for me. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not qualified to say. It wouldn't shock me. It depends. Deadheads in general are not difficult. But they, you know, they're kids and they can be boys, you know, some of them. I, I, again, there's, there's every possibility. And the deadheads, the theory, they all thought that a security guard was roughing him up and it got out of hand. That's as much as I know. It was truly mysterious. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. 
For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's Lifetime Membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Do you ever wish you could become a detective and help find the clues to the case? How about all of that in a mobile game that you can take anywhere? In June's journey, each scene leads to a new thrilling storyline. Uncover the mystery of June's sister's murder and find out about scandalous family secrets. The gameplay lets you find hidden clues as you investigate a murder mystery. Escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Let your imagination run wild when decorating your island estate and collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. Whether you're craving a good mystery or looking for an escape, you can immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story taking you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. Each new scene takes you further through a thrilling murder mystery story that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. I travel so much while working that I personally love to play it while sitting around airports with all that free time I have. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The chief medical examiner, Dr. Good, who did the second autopsy report, was subpoenaed and asked how he became involved in the case. Dr. Good said the state attorney general visited him in his office. He asked me to take a look at the case and let him know what I thought. He said that he wanted to have an opinion that he was comfortable with. One of the Burns security guards, Roberto Ayala, came forward and said another security guard, Shi Chang's son, told him that he was present when other guards hit Mr. Katz's head against a van in the arena parking lot and then continued beating him inside the van. Mr. Ayala quoted Mr. Sun as stating that he drove the van from the arena grounds with Mr. Katz and the other guards in it, and they just dropped him off someplace. Burns International Security Services has agreed to an out-of-court settlement on behalf of several of its officials and guards accused in the lawsuit, including Mr. Sun, So we've gone as far as we can with this case. But this is just the first of many for this season. Danny Rifkin, manager of the Grateful Dead, knew when he was getting fucked. The ones that did the fucking never tried to hide it. They weren't wolves in sheep's clothing. They were just wolves. And they always wanted their cut. They didn't even have to bare their teeth to get it. Two of those wolves were sitting across the table from him right now. Fred Rosen, CEO of the nascent national ticket sales company Ticketmaster, and his friend John Pritzer, a scion of the Hyatt Hotel family. Ticketmaster's deep-pocketed bankroller. Danny knew the type. These two had never stood out in the freezing cold or pouring rain for tickets to a show. They had never waited for hours or even days just for a chance to score entry to a can't-miss concert never even dialed the same 1-800 number over and over in the days before the redial button, just hoping that the busy signal would become an actual ring. They didn't search in vain for miracles in a parking lot. They were the miracles. 
And at this moment, they're also the enemy. Denny Rifkin took over as the Dead's manager two years prior, in the latter half of 1981. One of his earliest initiatives was to establish a mail-order ticket office so that deadheads could send in ticket requests from afar and not have to spend their precious time waiting in line. It also ensured that tickets could land in the hands of true deadheads and not scalpers looking to make an inflated buck. It was a brilliant move that offered the experience of a dead show to a wider audience, but it was also a necessity. In the 1980s, many of the original deadheads who had grown up with the band were older now. They had families of their own, and they held down real jobs. They may have remained hippies at heart, but the era of free love was long gone, and so was the luxury of free time. As Don Henley would soon so keenly point out, there were now deadhead stickers on Cadillacs. The dead's mail-order ticket office meant that you could be a deadhead and a grown-up at the same time. And the more creative you were with the envelope you sent through the United States Postal Service, the better your chance at scoring the tickets you wanted. You wanted to be on Jerry's side of the stage, you wanted to be close to the mixing board so you could plug directly in to get the best sounding boot of the show. You could also personalize your request however you wanted. And most of the time, the ticket office staff did what they could to accommodate. Close to 25,000 tickets were sold the first year of mail order in 1983, and then 115,000 the following year. By the beginning of the 90s, mail order would account for a half of a million ticket sales in a year. And mail order wasn't just good for business. The office employed dozens in the dead's inner circle, kept a direct line of communication open with deadheads from coast to coast. It was good for the family. And it also bypassed Ticketmaster. The National Ticket Company had money and muscle at its disposal and was quickly asserting its dominance at stadiums and amphitheaters. Rosen, for one, played hardball. If a promoter chose not to do business with Ticketmaster, Rosen would threaten to ice them out. Don't ever think you can play in one of my buildings again, he warned one such dissenter. It was a warning that led to a hasty change of heart on the promoter's part. Now, Rosen and Ticketmaster were playing hardball with the Grateful Dead. Instead of a 50-50 split with the Dead for their ticket inventory, Ticketmaster wanted 90%. They couldn't let this deal go down. In the eyes of guys like Danny Rifkin, Ticketmaster took all the heart out of live music. It wasn't even about the music. Danny had heard the stories. Rosen nodded off during a Steely Dan set. He slept through a Stone show. Music was the last thing Ticketmaster was interested in. To the Dead's attorney, Hal Kant, however, it wasn't just about Ticketmaster's thirst for greed over art. It was about the fact that Ticketmaster was a Johnny-come-lately, albeit a Johnny-come-lately with deep pockets and friends in high places that was infringing on the Dead's existing contractual relations. The promoters, the venues, the fans, these were relationships that the Grateful Dead had spent years developing. And now a corporate Goliath wanted to step in and reap the benefits. The Dead were all about sharing, the women, the wine, the ticket inventory, sure, why not? But 90%? That wasn't sharing, that was getting fucked. Danny Rifkin and Hal Kant knew they had one of the strongest, most loyal fan bases in the world. A fan base that could mobilize at the dead's request to rise up against the forces conspiring to wipe out their way of life. Hal could argue antitrust laws until he was blue in the face, but the real way to win this argument was with that powerful fan base, their people, their family. Hal didn't direct his next comment at Rosen, but instead at Pritzker, the hospitality man, the pocketbook. Hal looked Pritzker in the eyes and said, I don't think you want 5,000 crazed deadheads staying at Hyatt Hotels unhappy with you. And it worked. 
Rosen and Pritzker back down. They agreed to take the 50-50 split, and was all thanks to the specter of the deadhead wrath. The word deadhead goes all the way back to the early 19th century, when it was a theatrical term for a person who had been admitted to a show without charge. Sometimes the free entry was in-kind payment for hanging posters for the show. Sometimes a deadhead just knew a guy. But on September 24, 1971, deadhead took on an entirely new meaning. That day, the Grateful Dead released their self-titled live double LP. This is the record that Phil Lesh wanted to call Skullfuck. The band knew that Warner Brothers would never allow it, but regardless, they decided to troll their corporate overlords by arranging a meeting simply to argue their case for Skullfuck being a legitimate and viable title. They brought 55 people from their entourage to the meeting, so many that they couldn't fit in Warner Brothers' conference room. And after a good laugh, the dead conceded and decided to call the record simply Grateful Dead. But no one calls that record by that name. Legions of fans continue to refer to it as Skullfuck, unless they're referring to it as the less obscene name Skull and Roses, a hat tip to Alton Kelly's iconic cover art, which was based on an illustration from 1913. Fans who bought the double album upon its release were greeted by a special message in the record's gatefold. It felt like a personal invitation to a secret society, a secret society that was made just for them. And who were they exactly? What do they call themselves? And there, written beneath the credits on the right-hand panel of the inside sleeve, in large, bold type, a special message shed light on their collective identity. It said, Dead Freaks Unite. Who are you? Where are you? How are you? Send us your name and address and we'll keep you informed. Deadheads, P.O. Box 1065, San Rafael, California 94901. The Dead Freaks United, all right. They filled out postcards and stuffed envelopes, and by the end of the year, the Grateful Dead had received 350 responses. Shortly thereafter, it ballooned to 40,000, and then as many as 150,000. 150,000 fans, all of whom were in on the ground floor for a new fan club. A club in which anyone was welcome as long as they included a self-addressed stamped envelope, a club that now had an official name, the Deadheads. The Deadheads received regular mailings from the band and were the first to be notified about upcoming shows and tours. And that club, that tribe, that crew, those Deadheads continued to grow in number over the following decade. When Danny Rifkin and the band launched their mail order ticket office in 1983, they used that homegrown Deadhead mailing list as a start. The list they had built up from scratch, postcard by postcard, name by name, one fan at a time. And by the 1990s, the term deadhead didn't exclusively refer to the superfans who were in the know and regularly mailed in their ticket requests. Deadhead was now a catch-all name for the whole scene, from diehard hippies to fair-weather bandwagoners that those in the know called touchheads, including those who, like Fred Rosen, were about everything but the music. And mailing in a colorfully painted envelope to the Grateful Dead's ticket office was no longer an attempt to find a miracle. It was no longer a defiant act of individualism that rocked gently against the ramparts of a corporate behemoth. It was entry to what had quickly mushroomed into a much bigger scene, a scene well beyond the live sets that the dead performed each night. There were people everywhere, people riding in vans, sleeping on the ground, people arriving with one group of people and leaving with another group of people. They sold sandwiches, they sold drugs, deadheads upon deadheads, thousands of them. Sometimes a whole sea of people packed into a stranger's backyard. A sea so large that it was more than easy to find yourself swallowed up in the tide. 
I was working with her mom, Susan. Me and Jennifer are the same age. In 1992, Jennifer Wilmer, originally from Long Island, New York, decided to move out to California and pursue a hippie lifestyle. When she went out there from Long Island, she traded in her hair for dreadlocks. She goes out to Arcata, which was very much a deadhead community, got a new nickname. Her nickname was Jade. That's what people called her. You know, there's a lot of strange things about this case. You know, obviously nobody just vanishes like this. The note that she had left behind made it sound like she was going to be gone for a little bit. It's an oddly worded note. And, you know, for somebody to write that note and then never be heard from again, there's, there's things that are going on that just don't add up. The only piece of evidence was a note she left behind that she was going to a farm for work. This is Jennifer's older brother, Frederick. She would sometimes travel with friends and a group of people that would follow the Grateful Dead around. She had a lot of friends. She was a good kid. She really was. She wanted to explore things and explore herself and explore experiences. My nice, smart, socially conscious, kind-hearted younger sister may have gotten her into trouble. And I say gotten her into trouble only because she, she's gone. She's not here. My mother had gotten a call from one of her friends and it was basically saying, hey, we, we, we got this note. She left it. She left. It was like a farm she was going to go to. And nobody had heard from her. She didn't get to the farm. She was supposed to meet up with someone there and, and just never, it never happened. Okay, this, this doesn't sound good, but we just don't know. They don't know. My parents then, they decided we got to go out there. Nobody's doing anything. They're not listening. We, we need to put boots on the ground. We need to meet with some of these kids. And my mom and dad did a lot of boots on the ground type of thing, just seeing the areas, the roadway that she may or may not have traversed. The days turned into weeks, weeks turned into months. It, it was like, oh my God, what are we gonna do? Who are these people? We hired an investigator. And the years just keep going by and you're, you're continuing that same phase of disbelief. I know my, my parents went through this, my mother certainly did. Are we thinking of everything too narrowly? And then you start kind of going down different pathways. I took it upon myself to just sit down with whatever we had at the time and just really start to figure out as much as I could with what I had access to of who these people were. And it just, it didn't make sense. Was it a hit and run? Was it a, a bad ride? Was it a random hitchhiker? Was it, you know, running into the person you knew who happened to be the wrong person to run into at that time? Was it the boyfriend? You just run through a million different scenarios. And then you keep coming to the same conclusion that she's gone. What you do, and, and you all do it differently, you reach kind of a moment where you go trying to find the right words, you know. You go, it's over, you know. 
the, the, the bad part of closure is you, you close the book in your mind. Give me the file for the 20th time and maybe I'll, I'll find the thing I haven't been able to find. You know, there was an article many, many years ago that appeared. That reporter kind of identified the basics. And I think it helped. I know I've personally read it a number of times. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. The first time that I ever got involved with working on a Grateful Dead story was Jennifer Wilmer. Since the mid-90s, Billy Jensen has been investigating Jennifer's case. I decided that I didn't want to do stories that were already solved. She had followed the dead before, and she was very much a deadhead. She had gone out to Arcata, California, which is a, a big deadhead community. She went missing from her place that she was living in. Jennifer's case was less about the dead community. It was more about the people that were directly involved, making the police accountable for what they were doing with adults who go missing. They very much said straight out to Jennifer's mom, this is a walk away. This is an adult walk away. They did not do anything about this case. When you're a parent of an adult who goes missing, very often you're on your own. The police are not going to do it. The note that she had left behind, there's just so many odd things about that note. There's things that are going on that just don't add up. When Jennifer disappeared, the only clue she left behind was a note for her roommates. Bye, everybody. Went to my first day at the farm. Wish me luck. Good luck to you, Mingo, and see you in a few months. 
If someone could give food to the kitten as needed, I'd appreciate it. Hopefully I'll see you folks later. Love, Jade. It's an oddly worded note. Made it sound like she was going to be gone for a little bit. For somebody to write that note and then never be heard from again, it sounds like this was just going to be a day or two. She left all of her identification. And the biggest thing is she left her sleeping bag. No self-respecting deadhead would ever leave their sleeping bag behind if they were going on some sort of a journey. There's no way that Jennifer left on her own thinking that she was going to be gone for a while. Thanks for checking out Dead and Gone. Dead and Gone is written, hosted, and produced by Payne Lindsay and Jake Brennan. Check out Jake's other music and true crime show, Disgraceland, about musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly, as well as Payne's other shows, Radio Rental, Atlanta Monster, and Up and Vanished. Dead and Gone is a production of Tenderfoot TV and Double Elvis, and brought to you by Cadence 13 and executive produced by Donald Albright, Payne Lindsay, Brady Sadler, and Jake Brennan. This show is produced by myself, Mike Rooney, Alex Vespasted, and Eric Quintana. Mixed by Cooper Skinner. Music by Makeup and Vanity Set. With additional music services by Ryan Spraker. Additional mixing by Matt Bowden. Additional writing by Zeth Lundy. Copy edited by Pat Healy. Research and reporting by Eric Tricky. Cover design by Matt Mills for mattmillsart.com. Special thanks to Orrin Rosenbaum and Grace Royer from UTA, Ryan Nord, Jesse Nord, and Matthew Papa from the Nord Group, Chris Cochran and the Cadence 13 team, Beck Media and Marketing, Station 16, and the teams at Tenderfoot TV and Double Elvis. And as always, thank you for your support.